Father God, we thank you for the time that we have with the Bible open in front of us. Thank you that you are a speaking God, that you speak to us through your word. Please, would you do that now? Help us to see more clearly what Jesus has done for us and how we see that foreshadows here in Exodus. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, why do we still have landline phones? Apparently, it's uh, so we can use them to call our mobiles when we can't find them. And uh, on your mobile, if you're fortunate, you might have an app that will tell you where your car is. Uh, but to see your mobile, you may need to find your glasses. And where are they? Well, they could be anywhere. Uh, you might need to find your emergency glasses and put them on to find your actual glasses. We lose things, don't we? We lose things. And we forget what we've done with them, where we've left them, uh, which may well be on your head, obviously. Uh, but why do we do that? Because we get distracted. Other things claim our attention. And if that happens with relatively trivial things, well, it happens even more with God. So let me test you. What was the first line of the first song that we sang this morning? Who can tell me? Don't worry, I'm not actually going to ask. But, uh, you know, well done if you can remember. But it's, it's easy to be on autopilot, isn't it? It's easy to be distracted. It's easy to be thinking about other things. Uh, even during a sermon. Would you believe it? Can't believe that, can you? So welcome back if that's you. You've just woken up, haven't you? Welcome. But God's concern for his people, that we hear loud and clear through the reading this morning that we heard, is to remember remembrance of what God has done has been called the key to the Christian life, and we're going to see why that is. C.S. Lewis of Narnia fame said, what people need most is not to be instructed, but to be reminded. And that is very much God's approach to his people that we see in Exodus. There is instruction, we'll get to the Ten Commandments that everyone's kind of heard of uh, in chapter 20, but first there are things to remember and be reminded about what God did for his people before he asked them to do anything. Last time we had the first nine plagues, the plagues that enabled God to make himself known as creator, as judge and saviour. But now the final plague comes. And in chapter 11, which we didn't read, the Lord gives instructions first to Moses. He says judgment is going to fall on the firstborn of every family and every animal in Egypt. And God has been totally in charge of the whole process from beginning to end. And now he says, <clears throat> God says, this will make Pharaoh finally let my people go. But then something odd happens in the way Moses writing this later, he, he, the way he tells the narrative, because from the end of chapter 11, you could jump to verse 29 in chapter 12, and you would see what you expect to happen next. So this is going to happen, and then verse 29 of chapter 12, at midnight the Lord struck down all the firstborn in Egypt. So what he said would take place takes place. But in between, we get all this stuff about remembering. You see, it turns out that God is not just interested in rescuing his people, he's interested in his people remembering that he rescued them. Because he knows his people will be a forgetful people. And that actually we today will be exactly like that too. 
And so remembrance is baked into the rescue from beginning to end. And for us today, this is here to give us a picture of our rescue in Jesus Christ, in order that we too might be people who remember and live in the light of what Jesus has done. And we're going to see that very clear picture now. So there are three things to remember. You can see on the back of the notice sheet if you want to follow. Three things to remember. For each of them, God has a specific way to remember and an instruction to the people about how to explain what's going on. So we're going to see that. First of all, remember your redemption from death. Remember your redemption from death. And you can see the particular verses that we're focusing on. The big shock here to see from the outset is that if we think this is just a straightforward story about kind of God rescuing the good guys from the bad guys, well, we've got it wrong. But that is very often how we think of this story. You know, so the Israelites are innocent and oppressed and God judges the oppressing Pharaoh and the Egyptians and brings the Israelites out to their own nation. But actually, there's much more going on. You see, it's not just salvation for God's people through judgment, through the judgment of Pharaoh in Egypt. It's also salvation for God's people from judgment. Do you see? Not just through judgment, but from judgment. So chapter 11, verse 7, if you look down on the left-hand side there, it made it clear that God will make a distinction between Egypt and Israel. But he didn't explain at that point how that distinction would happen. And the shock and the surprise to find is that even in the house of the Israelites, there must be the death of a firstborn too. Judgment is going to come on everyone in the land of Egypt, even the people of God. In every household, there will be a death. The implication is the Israelites share in the guilt of the Egyptians, that they too are sinners. Now, the Russian writer Alexander Solzhenitsyn recognised this in his work, The Gulag Archipelago, which is his account of oppression in the Soviet gulags and uh, you know he's a political prisoner he's imprisoned unjustly suffering terribly but he noticed that although it was true that there was real evil in the actions of the guards actually the way that the prisoners treated each other was similarly evil and unjust see and he he wrote this he said the line between good and evil isn't us and them the line between good and evil runs down the middle of each one of us. And that's still true today. As we look at the many complex problems that the world faces, and, and, and the problem is that the, the, you know, the, the, the group of people that you can truly call good kind of gets smaller and smaller every day, doesn't it? As we feel disillusioned or let down by yet another politician or the latest church scandal or whatever it is. Now, maybe there are different levels of guilt with these things, but before the God who made us, we're all guilty. We all fall short of his perfect standards, whoever we are, whatever side of the debate we're on, or you know, whatever our attitude to global warming and the cost of living and the energy crisis, or whatever it is. Like the Israelites, no one deserves to stand before God and live, because ultimately it's him that we human beings have turned our backs on. But to the Israelites, he says, 
There will be a death in every household because every human being has turned their back on me. But in your household, make that death the death of a lamb. So verse 3, chapter 12. On the tenth day of the month, get a lamb for the household. Verse 5, not just any lamb, but a a year-old lamb without defect. Keep it in the family for four days so that it becomes part of the family. You know, you can sort of imagine the children playing with the lamb, knowing that it's there, almost like a pet, a very short-term pet, but it's identified with them. It's part of their family. Then slaughter the lamb. Paint the door frames of the house with the blood of the lamb before cooking and eating the lamb for a family meal together. And verse 11, if you look, it's a meal to be eaten in haste with your outdoor clothes on. So you've heard the phrase, gird your loins. That's what this is, okay? So I don't know if you've ever tried to run in a toga. Um, I imagine the issues are similar if you're wearing a long dress. Um, but the way uh, that they would do that, because togas were, you know, or everyone wore or something like that, the, the way you would do that is you would gather up the material at the front and you would tuck it into your belt so that you're ready for action. You can run without tripping over. And it's, it's sort of like rolling up your sleeves, you know, get ready. And, and, and that is, is what they're to do, to sit there ready to go. And, and what then will happen, verse 12, is that the Lord will pass through Egypt and strike down dead the firstborn of all people and animals, except in the houses where there is blood on the doorframe. Because in those houses there has already been a death. So God will pass over. So that's why this is called the Passover. Now, you might think, you know, blood on door frames is a bit random, isn't it? I mean, why does, why does God need to see that? You know, doesn't, doesn't he know that the animal has died? But verse 13, if you look, it's interesting detail. It's a sign for you, Moses says, or God says through Moses. That is why this uh, is there. It's, as much, it's a sign for you as much as it is a sign that God will see. See, the family need to know that the lamb has been slaughtered and they can sleep well in their beds tonight. Because you can, you can imagine the anxiety, can't you? Going round the household that night. They've heard what's going to happen. You know, the firstborn son. How's he going to be feeling that night? You know, Dad, Dad, when are we going to kill the lamb? And, and later, Dad, have you actually painted the door frame? You have done that, haven't you, Dad? And, you know, Dad at that point won't be saying, oh, you know, it'll be fine, I'll do it later, I'll do it after match of the day, I just need a rest. I've had a long day. No, this is urgent. No one is going to sleep well if it hasn't been done. So you can see what's going on. You see, it's a great picture of substitution. God's attitude to sin, you see, is not to pretend it doesn't matter. And that is good news because we want God to be a God of justice. We want to know that final justice will be done. You know, think how much anguish people get into about injustice and people getting away unpunished. You know, and when dictators die in their beds or murderers take their own life in their cell before their trial, you know, we we hate that as human beings. And the Bible tells us, though, no, God will judge. 
But the problem is that that line between good and evil runs down the middle of each one of us. And so he will judge us too. And our only hope is the lamb that he's provided. So as you may well know, Jesus in the New Testament many times is called the lamb. Picking up exactly on this image of a perfect lamb. We've been studying uh, 1 Peter in our small groups, and that, that image is right there in, in 1 Peter. So just a few verses from that to see on the, <clears throat> on the screen there. So chapter 1 in 1 Peter, verses 18 and 19. You know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. So do you see? Jesus... For Christians who trust in him is our substitute lamb. We deserve to die, but he takes our place. See, it's like we owe a massive debt, and the debt isn't forgotten or cancelled, it's paid by him. Or we deserve jail, but he goes there for us. Do you see? And of course, you know, if someone did that in real life between human beings, you know, we might have questions about whether it's just and right. You know, if someone deserves to go to prison, somebody else can't just step in and take their prison sentence. But in this case, you see, it's different because God is both the judge and the one who sets the law and says that this is wrong. He's both the judge, but also he is in Christ the substitute. The preacher and church leader John Stott put it like this he said the biblical gospel of atonement is of God satisfying himself by substituting himself for us he satisfies himself by substituting himself for us and that is what we see here modeled in the Passover but the overall aim here in Exodus is not just that they should be rescued but that they should then remember their rescue their redemption that is what Redemption means to be bought back, to be rescued. So you're not just going to do this meal on the night when it happens. You're you're going to do this meal again and again and again every year on that date, at this point in the month, to remember it. In chapter 12, verse 26, your children are going to ask you, why are we doing this? And you will tell them. So verse 27, you will say, it is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord. You passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt and spared our homes when you struck down the Egyptians. So you remember and you proclaim, you tell what God did. And again, what do we find when we come to the New Testament? We find at Passover another meal taking place, the night before a decisive act of divine judgment. So the Last Supper that Jesus has with his followers is a meal which both explains what is going to happen but is also instituted as a way for God's people to remember Jesus's death until he comes again that is what the Lord's Supper or communion is about remembering and proclaiming what Jesus has done well we'll come back to that but that's what we need to see first of all remember your redemption from death but then secondly Remember your redemption from slavery. So there's another aspect to remembrance here. As they remember their redemption from slavery, there's something about unleavened bread. So verse 15 in chapter 12, bread without yeast. 
This is about how God's people leave. They leave quickly and in haste. You see, there's a sense in which they're not just pulled out of the land by God, but they're pushed out of the land by God's enemies. So go, says Pharaoh, finally, verse 31. Go, and and please also bless me, he says. But go. And did you hear the, the curious detail about them taking the Egyptians' gold and silver with them? So in chapter 11, that's what God says is going to happen, and and earlier in Exodus as well. He says, you you, you will go, and you will take the Egyptians' gold and silver. And you think, really? Are the Egyptians just going to let them walk into their houses and walk off with all their valuables? But that is what happens. So what's going on? Well, it's it's as if the Egyptians are saying, go, look, look, we'll pay you to leave, because, you know, this is so grave, this judgment has come, come upon us. Go, we'll pay you. We can't cope with this anymore. So the Israelites go in haste, pulled out and pushed out. And the way that God gives them to remember that is this week-long festival of unleavened bread. You see, there was no time to faff around waiting for the dough to rise. That's the point, you see. No time for that. I know we've got a few expert bread makers amongst us, you know, whether you're using yeast or sourdough cultures, well, it takes hours and hours and you have to get all the timing right and you have to sort of work your day around the bread being made at the right times. You see, they haven't got time for any of that. And so they remember that haste with which they had to leave, the urgency, with bread that can be made straight away that you don't have to wait for, unleavened bread. And again, the New Testament picks up on that theme and applies it to Christians in a number of places. Um, But 1 Peter 1 is a great um, example of that again. What should you do as you respond to what God has done? Prepare your minds for action. Be self-controlled. Set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. And on he goes. Now that word for having an alert mind, in, in, 1P, in the first verse there, prepare your minds for action, that word is actually the word for girding up your loins. It's the same word. Gird up the loins of your mind. So Peter is saying this is urgent. What, the, the way to respond to what God has done is urgent it's like the israelites leaving egypt you need to make a decisive break with your old way of life as a slave to sin remember what you've been saved from and yet often our attitude as christians to our old life in slavery to sin is anything but urgent isn't it so you know it's as if you're in prison and you're languishing in your cell and it's cold and drafty and the bed is too short well at least it would be for me i'm sure but um and it's it's hard and there's nothing to do and there's no wi-fi i mean it's torture literally you know and then out of the blue unexpectedly the door opens and the warden appears and says you're free to go you can leave this prison now. So what are you going to do at that point? The door opens, says, you're free to go. Are you going to dawdle? You know, are you going to scratch one more game of noughts and crosses into the wall against yourself before you go? No, of course not. You're going to flee urgently. And if you didn't, people will be saying, what are you still doing here? Get out, go. 
You've been redeemed. The price has been paid for your release. Go. And yet, that sometimes is how we respond to what God has done for us. We, we dabble with sin. We put up with mediocrity. And then we're miserable with it. But we have been redeemed and we've been rescued from that. So it makes no sense to stay in that old way. Get out, go, go, go. What are you still doing here, someone will say. You know, still, you're still living your life as if you're at the centre, as if your needs are the only ones that matter, as if life is really about getting as much pleasure and as much money as you can before you die, like everyone else in the world around us. What are you doing? Do you see? Get out, go now. And chapter 13, again, describes the way to... Remember it, there's some more detail about the unleavened bread. And then verse 8, explain it to your children when they ask you. Chapter 13, verse 8, on that day tell your son, I do this because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. See, it's remember and proclaim, remember and proclaim. And we are to do the same with Jesus. So remember your redemption from death, remember your redemption for slavery, and then thirdly and finally, remember your redemption to new life. Remember your redemption to new life. This is a much briefer thing, but chapter 13, verse 2, those firstborn who were rescued now belong to the Lord. And that applies specifically to the ones who were rescued and didn't die. But back in chapter 4, God calls all of Israel his firstborn son. So there's a sense that in the saving of Israel's firstborn, all of Israel is saved, and all of Israel now belongs to God. And we've seen this before in Exodus. The word for being a slave and the word for worship are the same. So we exchange worshipping Pharaoh for worshipping God. We exchange being enslaved to Pharaoh for being enslaved to God. And the thing is, because of who God is, that is a good thing. See, it's like the ending in Oliver Twist, you know, Charles Dickens, where Oliver Twist, the orphan, is adopted by a family who care for him and love him and treat him properly. And that is a picture of our transfer from slavery to um, knowing God. The Book of Common Prayer, the Church of England's original prayer book from the 16th century, has a, has a collect. You know, these prayers, we sometimes still say collects today in our services. Uh, they're kind of special written prayers. And it has one that talks about how being in God's service is perfect freedom. In God's service is perfect freedom. You see, that is what we were created for. It's a kind of paradox, isn't it, to say there's freedom in service. But that is how it is. We are set free to serve God. That is true freedom and what we were created for. And so for us today, for Christians, the Apostle Paul in the New Testament writes, you are not your own, but you were bought at a price. You are not your own, but you were bought at a price. Therefore, honour God with your bodies. Because we've been rescued from death and slavery, so we belong to God now. Our bodies belong to God. 
You know, so think of this, you know, these are not my hands to serve me and do my will, they're God's hands to serve him and do his will. My feet are God's feet to go where he wants me to go. My mouth is his mouth to speak his message. You see, we belong to him. And we understand that we've been consecrated, set apart for God because he saved us. Well, it changes the way we think about everything, doesn't it? It changes the way we think about work. It changes the way we think about ambition, success and failure and everything else in between because well, we can't really talk about our own ambitions and lives anymore because our lives belong to him. And so wherever we find ourselves, you know, in the office tomorrow or at home, wherever we go... Well, it's not our life to kind of do what we're doing. It's, we're there to represent him. We're serving him in our workplaces and our home lives and everything else in between. And so we remember and again we proclaim. It says it again, so chapter 13, verse 14. In days to come when your son asks you, what does this mean? Say to him, and this is about the consecration of the firstborn, what, what does this mean? Say to him, with a mighty hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. So tell them what happened. So it's like in, in 1 Peter again. We'll see in chapter 3. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. So remember. Remember what God has done. Now we're going to come to the Lord's table in a moment ourselves. You see, Jesus instituted, he started off this remembrance because he knew that like Israel before him, we would be forgetful people. And so he gave us this meal to help us act out and remember who we are as Christian people who are trusting in Jesus. You see, we are people of the cross the bread is broken. The wine is poured out in remembrance of what Jesus did when he died as his body was broken and his blood was shed. And, and the way that we then remember is by everyone getting involved, participating in the meal like the Israelites did each year. You see, we don't just look at a, a photograph Say, so, look, there's the cross, let's remember. It's more than that, isn't it? It's an active participation by the people of God that marks us out as people who belong to the God who rescued us as we remember him together. And so we get up and we come forwards. And what do we do as we come forwards? We come with empty hands. We're not bringing things to God. We're coming to receive from God. As we, because that's a, that, that, that is what God has done in Jesus Christ. Being a Christian is not about bringing things to him and saying, look God how great I am. No, it's saying, look how great Jesus is. And Christians are people who receive from him. So we come with empty hands on the same basis as one another, whoever we are, whatever our backgrounds, whatever we've done, we come as humble, empty-handed sinners in, in need of rescue and forgiveness. And then we receive the bread and the wine. And at the same time as we physically eat the bread and drink the wine, our hearts spiritually feed on Christ in the heavenly realms where we are united with him.
And like with the Israelites, this is something that we do together. It's not a kind of one-to-one with God kind of thing. It is a corporate meal. And so as we do this, we look up, we look around, and we thank God for one another as his people. Because this is our meal. Now, what do you do at a meal? If you're having a family meal, well, you, you talk together. So, you know, it's okay to, 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 to talk to one another like you do at a meal, perhaps especially encouraging one another with what we've heard this morning. While also, you know, respecting those who may not want to talk. That's okay. But it is a meal that we do together. It is a corporate thing. And as we do this then, we remember also that one day we will feast together with Jesus face to face. We're pointed back to the cross. We're pointed up to the God who saves us. We're pointed to look around us at one another and to look forward to that day.